Good evening, everybody. Hopefully you guys are all doing well today. Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. Um, is everybody blurry-eyed tonight or is it just me? All of a sudden I can't see anybody's faces. It's just me. My right eye is looking pretty good. My left eye, you guys are really blurry coming out of my left eye, just so you know. Let's hope I can read this. No, nope, I can read that. Good. That's going to be important as long as I can still read this. I don't really need to see your faces, I suppose. Uh, so we're working our way through the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers has some things that are going to be repetitive in it as a book. Uh, but as we work our way through the book of Numbers, we're seeing the nation of Israel, uh, somewhat of a repetition from what we saw in the book of Exodus, but it's after they've come out of Egypt. They're heading towards the promised land, uh, and God takes the first ten and a half chapters really to set up and organize his people in preparation for the journey. And so when we pick it up in chapter 9 tonight, and we'll go through chapter 10, verse 10, we'll see kind of those last few instructions that he gives them before they actually start leaving Sinai and heading uh, in, a, in a long roundabout way to the promised land that will take them, you know, another 39 years from this point forward. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, we'll just start out by reading verse 1 through 5. It says, Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances, so Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. So this is really a retelling of the law uh, of the Passover. It's in a condensed form. Uh, but I think what's important about this retelling is it's, it's giving us a date of when this will actually happen. And what I mean by that is uh, we're seeing this as a marker in time. In verse 1, it says it's the first month of the second year. Well, if you compare that to Numbers chapter 1, uh, Numbers chapter 1 started out uh, in the first of the sec uh, the, on the first of the second month in the second year. And so you can kind of compare those two things. Uh, look at it again, first month of the second year. And again, first month of the second, uh, I'm sorry, first of the second month in the second year. So what's interesting, it actually goes back in time a month. Did you see that? It just goes back in time a month for whatever reason. It doesn't follow a standard timeline uh, in the sense that we would. But what it's ultimately showing us here is that they're going to celebrate the Passover for the first time since the original Passover. Since that, that moment in the nation uh, of Egypt when they were in slavery and bondage in Egypt and God on that final plague decided to kill the firstborn children of every man and of every animal except he passed over the household of the faithful Jews who marked their house with the sacrificial blood of the lamb. And so that was that first Passover. This is the first time it's been celebrated. So we're looking at a year later now since the original Passover. But this is for them a chance to remember the work that God had done. It's important for them. Uh, one of the things I'm often fascinated about 
with the nation of Israel with these feasts is just kind of thinking through how God set this up for them as a nation, as families, so they could pass on these truths about God from generation to generation. It wasn't uh, as easy for them. They couldn't just, you know, take the, the written words and go take them down to the local copy center, if those even exist anymore. I don't even know if copy places exist anymore. I just, you know, send it as a text, right? But they couldn't do all of that. So they had to do it in the form of oral traditions and of these feasts and these celebrations. And so it was built into the clockwork of their calendar. It was built into these regular rotations to consistently and constantly tell from generation to generation the stories of what God had done for them. It really is kind of fascinating to me. And in some sense, I think um, we lose a little bit as Christians because we don't fall under the Old Testament law, so we don't necessarily go through the process of celebrating these. But if we don't spend time as Christians at least looking at these, we kind of miss that sense or those reminders. I think often about churches that uh, never really go through the Old Testament at all. I just think what they're missing. You know, what we forget is that God was giving through that Old Testament law the plan of salvation all laid out prophetically so that when it actually occurred in Jesus Christ, they would recognize the pictures of Jesus throughout history. You know, the book of Galatians says that all of that law was just a tutor to point people to Jesus Christ. It was to hold them over until Jesus. It was just kind of this beautiful thing that was laid out for them. And then, of course, we can see now the pattern of that. We're in the Gospel of Matthew right now. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover and of course, the timing of that is perfect. As Jesus is celebrating that last Passover, he then becomes the sacrificial lamb, the last sacrifice for all sacrifices. And so in a sense, he, I, I don't want to say he puts an end to it, but it doesn't need to go on after that. These Old Testament sacrifices don't need to go on because of him. And so now in Jesus, we don't have a holiday to celebrate. We have a Passover savior to celebrate. We have a Passover lamb. We don't celebrate the actual holiday. We celebrate the fulfillment of the holiday in Jesus Christ. First uh, Corinthians uh, in um, uh, chapter five talks about uh, Christ, our Passover lamb. It's just a good reminder for us that as we celebrate or think about who Jesus is in doing so, we're kind of celebrating the work that God has already done. But understand, God did that. It, and again, this is the weird way I look at the world. But I think of the Old Testament as some sort of symbolic play. As these people are actually living out these events, it was God doing a symbolic play pointing forward to all the things that Jesus would ultimately do. It all kind of plays out for us throughout history. And of course, we recognize that these things were given to us as examples in the Old Testament. Uh, some of them are good examples and some of them are bad examples, uh, but they're there for us to be able to understand how rightly to live in the face of the things in the world so that we don't follow the bad examples. Well, thankfully, here we actually have a good example. They're going to celebrate the Passover. I'm not going to go into all the details of the Passover. You guys can look at Exodus 11 and 12 if you want to go back and read through some of those things that occurred at the Passover. Um, but for us, an, an interesting connection uh, would then be communion. When we take communion, we recognize that Jesus took that Passover meal and he converted it, I would say, to show now it being a picture of him. And so now the bread represents his body and the blood represents the new covenant. And we take and we eat in remembrance of him, the Passover lamb. 
which is interesting as you kind of lay all of that out. Uh, so for us, another way that we celebrate Passover, not in a specific day, but in a specific meal. We have our communion meal as a, as a throwback look at the Passover that God has repurposed to remind us of Jesus who becomes the Passover lamb. So it all kind of plays together for us. We don't want to overlook those things. Uh, but again, the powerful thing about this is that they followed the example. And so on the 14th day of that month at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. So Moses told the sons of Israel, and they observed the Passover. And I'd like to just take a moment every once in a while when Israel does the right thing. Because there's a lot of times in the scripture where we see the nation of Israel not do the things God had asked them to do. But let's not pretend it was always like that. There were instances, there were times when the nation of Israel is faithful. And so we want to look at those faithful moments and use them as an example for us that we would observe the things that God tells us to do as they've been passed on to us, that we would live them out, that we would be faithful to follow Christ as Lord, which means ultimately we're going to do the things he asked us or asks us to do. And that's how it ends there in verse 5. According to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. It's just a, a cool reminder for us that Israel isn't always the bad guy. Israel oftentimes gets mistreated, I think, in the way I think of them and others. Israel was, in fact, in this case, the good guys. They were observing all the things that God had commanded them to do. Well, verse 6, uh, we start to see uh, some exceptions to Passover, some, some various rules that are going to be clarified for them so they can have a greater understanding of these things. We pick it up in verse 6 here. Uh, but there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel. Moses said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is in a, on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. So here is an exception uh, that there are, uh, from occasion, reasons why people cannot celebrate the Passover at the appointed time of the year. And they're going to give two reasons here, but the first came from a group of people that had a question. Passover time was coming, they're all celebrating Passover, but this group of men were unable to celebrate Passover because apparently they had come in contact with a dead person, which makes them ceremonially unclean. They didn't do anything sinful, they were just ceremonially unclean and as such they could not because of the time required to become clean they could not celebrate the Passover this year well I love their hearts they're actually like upset that they can't celebrate God they want to remember with the rest of the tribes they want to remember with the rest of their brethren 
what it was that God had done for them. They want to pass these things on from generation to generation. And so they're restrained from presenting because of the law, and yet they approach Moses and say, what's the deal with that? We, we want to do this. We want to present our offering to the Lord at the, at the appointed time among the sons of Israel. Can there be an exception? Well, I love how this works out. Moses therefore says to them in verse 8, wait and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. So he tells them to wait, and then he brings this to God, and he listens to whatever God would say, and then he responds to those things. I do think there is uh, just a lot of wisdom in there. Sometimes when we don't have all the right answers from God, it's okay to wait. Sometimes you feel like everything is time sensitive. I have to know right now. I don't have time for this. I need to know. Somebody's asked me a question. What am I supposed to do? I don't know the answer to that question. I'll just make something up. I'll just say, do the best you can do. It's okay to say, why don't you wait until I can research this some more? Or until you can research this some more. But wait and then go to the Lord and see what the Lord says. Now, for us, we go to the Lord primarily through his word. But remember, they didn't have all of this. They didn't have this book. So they're missing, even amongst the things that Moses wrote down, like they're missing all of this, this whole part right here. They're missing all of that. They didn't have all that. So for them, they have less information than us. We have so much more. But they also had something we didn't have, and that was Moses. <laughs> And Moses would go speak to God, and God would speak to Moses, and then Moses would speak to the people. Well, in the place of Moses, I would say we have the Holy Spirit, but we do need to be cautious to not be finding new doctrines in things that aren't rooted in God's Word. I think there is a, a little bit of a danger in there that some people say, well, I'll go listen to the Spirit, and whatever the Spirit says, that's what I'm going to do. And then they, um, I'll say it as gently as I can, they sometimes substitute their own opinions their own reasoning for the reasoning of God. And so we want to be careful with that. We don't want to be dogmatic about those things. But this whole process, wait until you hear from the Lord and then respond when it comes to difficult circumstances and situations, when it comes to things that you don't fully understand in the Word. Wait, go to the Lord, and then respond once you've heard from Him. And again, I believe the primary way that we hear from God today is through the written Word. Uh, certainly now we can hear from him from other believers who've spent a lot of time in the word and they can bring us to things that we couldn't find ourselves as quickly. But ultimately we're going back to that written word, the primary fashion in which I think we hear from God. So wait and then listen to what the Lord has to say and then respond. Well, here's God's answer to them. He says in verse 10, if any one of you or your generations becomes unclean, because of a dead person, or here's a second reason to miss Passover. You're on a distant journey, so you couldn't get to town in time. He may observe the Passover to the Lord in the second month on the 14th day. So it's almost like they get a second shot at Passover. It's almost like they have two Passovers every year. One is the traditional Passover, and then there's another one for everyone who missed it for good reasons, because they were ceremonially unclean, because they were too distant to get there, but they're still going to make effort to get there. It just gives them a second chance. And again, uh, there, there's no harm in that. There, there's no harm in this guy who just happens to maybe come across a dead person or has somebody die in their home. 
Or maybe they're the grave digger, you know? Like, man, I should have taken this month off. It's, it's Passover month, right? Maybe that's their job. But whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstances, they are not allowed in those circumstances to take pa- part in Passover. But God says, but a month later, we'll give you a second opportunity. Why? So that they can present their offerings before God. So that they can be in right relationship with God. I, I love the heart of these men who ask the question, I still want to worship God. Give me a path. Give me a way forward to worship you, Lord. So that's the idea that he comes up with. That they have an opportunity that they can now worship the Lord in a second month, a month later. So they still have to observe it in all the normal fashions. Uh, we pick up in verse 13. We'll see another uh, alteration or an understanding, a clarification really uh, of what's going on here. In verse 13, but the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. Now there is a person who cannot celebrate it the second time around. And that's the person who just neglected to do it. Eh, I just don't really feel like doing it this year. My heart's not in it. I'm not in the right mood. It's like me every year at Christmas. Eh, seems like a lot, right? You just kind of get complacent about these things. Didn't I just celebrate Passover a year ago and then a year ago and then a year ago and a year ago? I've done this for like 47 years, Lord. Maybe I'll just take this one off. Well, that guy has a particular issue in that he's neglecting the Word of God, and he's neglecting worshiping God. There's a heart issue there. In fact, the Passover could be for him a chance to restore his heart, but because they neglect it, this person is going to have to deal with their sin. They're unable to deal with their sin in the traditional sense because they skipped the Passover. They skipped the sacrifices for their sins. and So they're now cut off from the people. Uh, now, I'm not entirely sure that I'm clear on this. I, just, just so I make sure when I explain this to you, I'm not sure if they're permanently cut off or if they're just cut off until there's some mode of repentance or if they're just cut off till the next Passover. Uh, and what cut off uh, specifically means in this case, I don't think the passage makes it clear. Sometimes you know, cut off just means they had to be outside the camp until they could go through a process of being uh, made clean again. They're brought back in. So I'm not really sure in this case what that means. Uh, but there is a separation of fellowship that happens there. They're removed from the fellowship of the rest of their family, of the rest of the friends, of the people of the nation of Israel, their brothers, their tribes. There's a, there's a removal there. And it's intended, I think, to put added pressure on them to bring them to a place of confirm, conforming themselves to the will of God. It's, it's intended uh, to go after them in such a way that their hearts would be changed towards these things. Uh, it's one of the things I think we're kind of nervous to do as believers sometimes. We certainly want to show grace to people, and we certainly want to continue to pursue people. But ultimately, if people are just in a place of sin and they're unwilling to repent, God does have in store for them a time of separation, 
And there are ways that we go about that in the New Testament. Matthew 18, of course, describes that. You'll see it some in First and Second Corinthians, how all of that kind of plays out and works out. Uh, but there's this idea of just handing them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh in the hopes that it might lead to the salvation of their souls. And it's kind of the same idea here as these guys are cut off because they neglected, and this seems to be an intention, they neglected to worship God through the Passover. Uh, verse 14 brings us the next exception or uh, clarification to the Passover rule. Uh, in verse 14, I would say this is an exception, it's a clarification. In verse 14, uh, if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so shall he do. You shall have one statute both for the alien and for the native of the land. Okay, so an alien who is sojourning with you. Somebody who is not Jewish and they're traveling with you or traveling through later when they get into the land of the promised land, traveling through your land. It's just a traveler who ends up kind of connecting with your group. Uh, he's not Jewish, but he sees you guys celebrating the Passover. He says, I want to celebrate the Passover as well. God says to them, hey, it's the same law. For those who are Jewish and those who are not Jewish, we would all celebrate. I do want to make clear to you, though, they have to follow the exact same rules as all the others who are celebrating the Passover. Which means, according to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, those aliens who are sojourning in the land, if they want to celebrate the Passover, they must, them and all the male children in their group, have to be circumcised in order to celebrate the Passover with them. So they have to be pretty serious about this at this point, right? Like this isn't just like, I just want to give this a try. I'm going to just try out Judaism. The cost is pretty high, right? Like there's a real intent in their heart. They've recognized something about the nation of Israel, whether it's the way God has treated them exceptionally or cared for them or the miraculous things that God has done. And certainly we'll see one of those miraculous things that would be constantly visible to anybody that was sojourning amongst them. Uh, maybe it was just the way the people lived. Maybe it was the longevity of the people or the health of the people or whatever it is. They start to recognize there's something different about these people and their God. And they take it serious enough that they're willing to put themselves through circumcision just so they can celebrate the God who rescued an entire nation out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And maybe they've heard the story before. We also recognize, though, that what came up out of Egypt was a little bit of a mixed multitude, that there were Egyptians who watched the Israelites march out of bondage, and it says that that mixed multitude started to go as well. Some of them were like, I'm going with those guys. They got this thing figured out. And so there would be even some potentially Egyptians or others that had been living in Egypt at that time who would have followed them out, and they're starting to ingrain into the Jewish society by taking on Jewish as their faith, by taking on God ultimately as their God. Uh, but I, I love just the way that is, that the, for those uh, alien, those who are foreign, who are sojourning or passing through or living in your land, they're welcome to join with you but to do that, they have to become like you. There's a setting aside to a certain extent of their traditions because their traditions were rooted in false religions, in following after false gods. That's not a political statement. That's a religious statement. 
God wasn't trying to convert them to a political viewpoint as Jews. He was trying to convert them to a religious viewpoint, that they would become followers of God. That's ultimately what I think God is, is wanting to see here. He's wanting to see his people grow that are worshiping him and following him. I don't think it's uh, intended in the way that some people might take that when they first think it through. Anyway, uh, the, the next section, a longer section here, uh, is going to be one of those things that I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, I'm impressed by, I wish I could have seen type things in the Old Testament. Uh, we pick it up in verse 15 here in chapter 9. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from the tent, Afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the clouds settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, wherever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered above the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did not, or they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Now, I can certainly envision this. But man, I would really love to actually see this. So when they erected or set up the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, it says this column, this cloud, came over the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And at nighttime, it would turn to fire. Now what that tells me is they could visually see every single day and every single night that God was in their midst. He was in their presence. Look, there's a lot of reasons I don't want to be one of the Old Testament guys, not the least of which is no indoor plumbing, right? But man, they heard the voice of God. They saw the fire and the cloud. They saw God deliver time and time again, from slavery and bondage. And in such physical ways, we get that in spiritual ways. We can connect to it in that sense, but they saw it. And for years on end, they saw this. What a phenomenon that would have been. How impressive is that? This cloud and this column of fire. 
And it was just there. And what's cool, it shows actually kind of a really cool picture. It wasn't just that, and again, I think this is how God made himself present and made himself known to the people. But it's not just that it was there. It was that from time to time, it would move, telling them where to go. They would follow it. And if that's the presence of God, why wouldn't you follow it? It reminds me of, um, I think it was Henry Blackaby. Is it Experiencing God? Is that the book? I don't know if you guys remember. Uh, Anyway, Henry Blackaby talks about one of his principles is just that wherever you see God working, go there. That's how you know you're finding the will of God. Because you see God working, you join in with the work of God. But it's kind of like that same picture for me. Wherever the presence of God went, wherever that column of fire, that column of smoke went, the people would stand up, undo their camp, put it all in the traveling carts, and they would follow that thing wherever it went around the desert. And then when it stopped, they would stop. Now think about this. Jesus tells us we're supposed to follow him. Again, I think all of this important for historical reasons, but also a picture of what God desires from us, that we would follow him wherever it is he would lead us. And of course, he doesn't necessarily lead us in the same way with a visible cloud or a visible column of fire. Uh, I think he leads us through his word. He leads us through the commands and the teachings of Jesus. uh, And he certainly can lead us through his Holy Spirit and does. But such a great picture for us. So that's the way it would work out, uh, is they would have their camp all set up, and the fire would be there, or the cloud would be there, it would be over the tabernacle, over the tent of meeting, and they would just go about their business. They would just go about their life, get everything set up, they would live there, they would do whatever they needed to do to provide food, all that kind of stuff, and then one day they would see it start to move. And everybody would be like, pack up the gear, honey, we're going on another adventure, and you would follow this column. And it says even here and here pretty specifically uh, that sometimes the column would be in just one day. You'd just be in an area for one day or two days or a month or a year. Which in and of itself, a year of seeing that column in one place. But again, you know you're in the will of God because you're right where he wants you to be. It's so visible. It's so obvious. It's so easy to see. But what they don't know is why God's moving them the way he is. There's no revelation here that says, well, we want to get to this place by this day. And so the way I envision this, in my mind, this is a very simplistic mind, but God, seeing everything that's going on around them, might say, we're going to hold here because there's a group of marauders going this way that we won't want to mess with. I'm just going to wait until they pass. And once they pass, it'll be time to get up again and move. Or we're just going to wait here because there's a storm coming. I don't want you guys to have to march in a storm. So we're just going to wait here until the storm passes. Or there's disease in this area, so we're just going to wait until that passes. I also think sometimes God does it just to see if they're obedient. It's an opportunity for them to show their obedience. I thought about that with my kids a lot when they were little. Um, you know, one of those, those things that as parents we want to do is we want to protect our kids. And so there were things we taught them, like they always stop when they get to a road. 
Like if you're out for a walk before you cross the street, you stop and you look both ways. So we would train them these very simple things. They're designed to get them to make wise choices, but it also shows us that they can be obedient, that they can learn and be teachable. It has impacts on everything, and I think God does that sometimes with us. I think as he leads us, he certainly has reasons and directions he's trying to get us, places he wants us to go, things he wants us to do. But I also think sometimes it's just opportunities for us to be obedient to him. I don't think we always have to know the reason why God wants us to do things. Sometimes it's just good enough to know that God wants us to do it. I think that's one of the modern day struggles. We feel like we have to have answers for everything. Why does God think this is bad? Well, can we at least recognize that he does? And at that point, if he hasn't revealed why, can't we just say, he's God. And if he doesn't want us to do that, let's not do it. If he's opposed to it, let's be opposed to it. I mean, it shouldn't be that, that simplistic, but it really, to me, kind of is. I don't feel like I have to have the answers to every question. I feel like I've gotten enough answers that I can trust him for the ones I don't understand. He answers so much in his word. He's answered so much in my life that when I don't understand things, I'm okay to just stand by and say, he's been faithful. From generation to generation to generation, I can see his faithfulness towards his people. And so in this circumstance that doesn't make any sense to me, or in this issue that I can't fully understand, I'm just going to trust him. And so if he says stay, then I stay. If he says go, then I go. But boy, I wish I could see the cloud and the fire. Some amazing stuff right there. The visible presence of God. And again, we see this amazing example of the sons of Israel doing the thing that God asked them to do. Earlier I mentioned 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, it's one of those passages I go to when I'm trying to think about how to interpret the scripture. Uh, but it has uh, just a fascinating, it uses this actual picture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So he's saying these Old Testament things happened as an example for us, but he names specifically, or at least it looks like he's naming specifically the cloud, this cloud, this column of the cloud that was there. It's just an example for us. We look at their faithfulness or faithlessness and we can recognize the hand of God and how he wants us to be, that we would be the same way. So, that's the deal. Uh, whenever the, the cloud would move, they would move with it. And whatever it stopped, they would stop. Just a simple way to think through life of following Jesus. And, and again, that's how I view myself in this world. Uh, I look at myself in, in a similar sense to the Israelites. I'm on a journey. I don't know how long it is, but the end of the journey is the promised land. And as long as I'm working my way towards the promised land, I'm just going to follow Wherever God leads me, that's the goal. Just follow him wherever he leads you until you get to the promised land, which of course for us would be uh, the heaven, heavenly places. When we enter into heaven, we've entered into that promised land, that promised place that God has given for us. 
well. Uh, they also have built in a communication system for traveling. Uh, so it's not just the visual of seeing the cloud move, uh, but there's also an auditory thing that happens in verse 10 or chapter 10. Uh, he's going to describe some trumpets and how those trumpets are used to direct the people as well. Which again, all this is important. You're trying to communicate with potentially millions of people camped out in family groups. I can't imagine how much space that would have taken. And you're trying to do it at a time where you don't have the technology that we have today. It's not like you just send a group text and everybody gets it and goes, oh, it's time to move. So you have the the visual aid from God, and then there's going to be this auditory thing that he was going to have the priests do by blowing of trumpets. And verse 1 says, the Lord spoke further to Moses saying, make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work. You shall make them and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camp set out. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet, if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall shall assemble before you. But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is blown uh, for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however... You shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts, And on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So uh, they've got these trumpets that they're supposed to blow. These trumpets are used to communicate things to the people and to communicate with God. So it first uses the trumpets as an idea of summoning the congregation and for having the camps move out. So those are kind of the first two. So one is to call people. So I always use the idea when I was in junior high and high school, if we had a school assembly, they would blow the bell, right? They would ring the bell. We all knew we had to go to the assembly. It's the same type of thing for them. In this case, it's a blowing of a trumpet, and it's a calling of the people together. Uh, That's specific now, whether they're blowing two trumpets or one, if it's just one trumpet, he's calling just the leaders together. Uh, So when both are blown in verse three, both are blown. I'm saying this, the words aren't flowing well, but when both are blown, all the congregation gathers themselves at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That means everybody is to go to the tent of meeting when, when both trumpets are blown. Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, assemble before you. And then you can blow it with an alarm. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that would have sounded like. I've I've read some some guesses. Uh, But the idea that if you blow it with an alarm, now it's telling you that it's time to head out. And so those people who are on the east side head out, those people on the south side, it's just an order an alarm, an alarm, so you're blowing it, but at least the way it makes it sound like there's different ways of blowing it. Like, you know, you blow it, people come together. But if it's an alarm, it's like, it's a different type of tooting, I guess is the way I would say that. 
So as they blow on this thing in different ways, it would have some sort of instruction for them. And that's been kept, by the way, for military for years. We still use that in the military today, that same concept. We still have reveille and all of these different things that we do in the morning, we do at night, we do the bugle call when somebody's having a funeral or when you're putting down the flags, all of these different things, those, those are still there. They were designed because it's an easy way to communicate to a large group of people. So that's one piece of it, communicating to the people, whether they're supposed to assemble, whether they're supposed to send their leaders to assemble, or whether it's time to start marching as they go out. Uh, they also do this when they go to war, and they would blow the trumpets in that way. Uh, And then it tells us um, that the people who blow the trumpets are the priestly sons of Aaron. They're the ones that actually blow the trumpets. Uh, But when they go to war with an adversary, or if you've been attacked by an adversary, you sound the alarm with the trumpets. And it's interesting what it says about this. It's sounding the alarm to speak something to God. Now look at that in verse 9. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. You remember when the walls of Jericho came down? It was God responding. But it's almost as if they're, they're like, hey God, look at us, remember us. Now, I don't think God is forgetful, but again, it shows just a little bit of your trust in God, if when you go to battle, the first thing you're thinking is, don't forget to blow the horn because God is on our side and God will save us. It tells a lot about what you really believe in if you're willing to do that first. But it's a communication to God. And then the next ones here in verse 10 Uh, As as we look at this final verse here, uh, the next time you would blow the trumpet, in the day of your gladness. So apparently just if everybody's celebrating and everybody's happy, in the day of your gladness. uh, In the day of your appointed feasts. And so there were certain things described in the various feasts uh, when you were to blow trumpets, especially the feast of trumpets, right? That makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, And then on the first day of your month. So the first day of every month, they would blow the trumpets. And it says, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over sacrifices and peace offerings. And they shall be as a reminder of you before God. I am the Lord your God. Now think about that. They, they, when they celebrated, they blew the trumpets. When they followed the feasts, they blew the trumpets. The first day of every month, they blew the trumpets. And then as they brought the sacrifices, they blew the trumpets. And again, as the same as the sacrifices would go up as a sweet aroma to God, I think this is the same thing as he hears them following what seems like pretty arbitrary instructions, really. There's nothing mystical about it. There's nothing super amazing about it. It's just blowing a trumpet. But the first of every month, in a very practical sense, the people could hear that they're being represented before God. And the people now know it's the first of the month. <laughs> they don't, you know, don't have their Timex with them or anything. There's a practical side to all of these things, right? But it says as you do this, again, it's a reminder of you before your God. Again, I don't think God forgets you, but I do think 
as you consistently approach God, when it's time for him to step in your life, he will remember that you always came to him as he requested over and over and over again. This is why we pray when we don't have problems, right? We just continue to be in relationship with God. Siri wants to say something. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. I, I know. You don't understand. I don't understand either, Siri. Um, I don't even remember what I was talking about. But that consistent nature of blowing those horns at, the, at their times of gladness, their times of festivals, the new moon, as well as when they would bring their sacrifices, they consistently did that and brought that before God. Every time he heard that, he heard my people are being obedient to me. My people are following my word. My people are worshiping me. But if the people weren't doing those things, it should be an alarm to God, but it's also an alarm to the people. The priests aren't blowing the trumpets. The priests aren't remembering me. It's a sign that we're to repent. To return. It's hopefully something that we can find ourselves clearly looking at in our own lives if we're consistently pursuing God or if we just wait until it's time for the battle or just when we have problems. But I think if we consistently present ourselves to God, we're more prepared to receive from God. Anyway, lots of interesting stuff there. Tom's going to take over next week as he starts to look at this first moving out where they're first going to move out at this point. It's been a year now uh, since they've left the, the uh, slavery and bondage in Egypt. Uh, they've now celebrated one Passover in Egypt and one Passover outside of Egypt, and they're going to start working their way towards the promised land, and uh, it won't be long before things start going poorly for them. So uh, let's pray for ourselves that we don't become like them, right? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word, and uh, just always... Uh, excited to see those, those little pictures of your gospel, uh, those little pictures of your faithfulness, those little examples uh, that we can look at, not as a, a new set of rules, but as just a reminder uh, that you desire to be in the midst of your people and you desire to hear from your people and you desire to remember your people and to respond to your people and to provide for your people. Lord, I don't say this so that we would earn anything from you. But just because we want to be a people who truly worship you and who truly love you. It's just such a regular and repetitive part of our life that we would always be pursuing you and that as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Father, would you make yourself evident in our lives? that we could, not necessarily visually, but we would just know uh, that you're working in our midst, that you're working around us. And we thank you for all the times you have made yourself known. Father, we pray that we would be strengthened by those and encouraged towards greater times. In Jesus' name, we await your return. You're calling us home with trumpets so that we can be in the promised land with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.